Around 2 p.m. on January 6, 1942, Mess Sergeant Jose Calugas was in his mess kitchen near the front lines at Layak Junction, just north of the Bataan Peninsula. The field kitchen's thin canvas shelter barely protected him from the intense enemy fire. Bombs, shells, and shrapnel had consistently exploded near him throughout the day. Somehow, amid all the chaos, Sergeant Kalugas noticed that a large 75mm artillery gun from another nearby battery had gone silent. It was supposed to be supporting the American front line and targeting oncoming columns of Japanese forces, but the gun remained quiet, motionless, still. Realizing the detriment of an out-of-commission artillery gun to the U.S. forces, Kalugas jumped into action. He called to any nearby servicemen he happened to see, telling them to follow him to the silent gun. Sergeant Kalugas, followed by 16 volunteers, began sprinting across a 1,000-yard expanse that separated them from the gun. They dodged the heavy shelling that was still raining down from Japanese artillery. The explosions sent some men back toward the mess kitchen. Others were wounded, some killed. Kalugas dove to the ground, crawling the remaining distance while shrapnel flew around him and machine gun bullets ripped his clothing. But he made it to the gun. Finding plenty of ammunition, Kalugas repaired and loaded the large artillery gun and spent the next two hours firing on advancing Japanese columns, despite the heavy barrage still coming from the Japanese artillery, and aimed directly at him. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This is the third of four episodes about the three men awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor during the Battle of Bataan in early World War II. And today's episode focuses on the only Filipino to receive the Medal of Honor during World War II, Sergeant Jose Calugas. Sergeant Calugas is also the only one of the three Bataan Medal awardees who survived the war. He'd go on to become a career army officer, a U.S. citizen, and the first college graduate in his family. He was an amazing, heroic man who passed to his family the legacy of opportunity and education and who exemplified the ideals of the American dream. Let's jump in. Jose Cabalfin Calugas was born on December 29, 1907 in Barrio Tagsing near Lyon in the Iloilo province of Panay Island, Philippines. His parents were Antonio Calugas and Juliana Cabalfin. The Spanish word barrio means neighborhood in English. In the Philippines, a barrio is the smallest administration unit. In rural areas, a barrio would be equivalent to a village or a ward in the United States. Barrio Taxing is a rural barrio in the mountainous area of the Iloilo province. This area is known as Panay Island's vegetable garden because of the large amount of agriculture produced there. 
Panay Island is the fourth largest island in the Philippines and is south of Luzon Island where Manila and Bataan are located. Of his Barrio Tagsing hometown, Jose said, Barrio Tagsing is in the mountains, 12 miles or 19 kilometers from Barrio Leon on Panay Island. I remember we used to walk about three hours to get home when we left Leon. There was this river in between. Sometimes it would be really rapid and we'd have to go around. It would take us five hours then to get home. Jose and his three siblings went to Catholic school as children, and his parents were farmers. Simple and frugal barrio folks of moderate means. 22-year-old Jose enlisted in the U.S. Army's Philippine Scouts in March 1930, where he initially was paid $9 per month. After basic training, he was assigned to Company C, 24th Artillery, and stationed at Fort Stotzenberg, which is about 57 miles or 92 kilometers north of Manila. The Philippine Scouts were elite soldiers who trained vigorously and became excellent marksmen. In 2007, Jose Calugas' son, Jose Calugas Jr., was featured in a short video for KCTS-9 in Washington State. Jose Jr. stated, There were the elite forces in the Philippines at that time. So there were 6,000 Philippine Scouts trained before the war. But during the war, they increased it by another 6,000. By the way, I've embedded that video on my website if you'd like to watch it. The link is in the show description. In 1935, Jose met a Filipina named Nora, who was visiting relatives near Fort Stotzenberg, where Jose was stationed. Nora was also from the Iloilo area. She had attended college in the Philippines on a full scholarship and became a high school biology and English teacher. The young couple fell in love and married at Fort Stotzenberg in 1936. Soon thereafter, a daughter joined the family, and in January 1940, their son, Jose Jr., was born. A third child soon followed. But their family life at Fort Stotzenberg was interrupted when Japanese air forces attacked and destroyed Clark Field, which is right next to Fort Stotzenberg, on December 8, 1941. Jose Jr. would later write, at the outset of World War II, my father decided to send us back home to Barrio Taxing to live with our relatives, so he did not have to worry about our safety. Three weeks after the Japanese attacked Clark Field, they landed a ground invasion on December 22nd, and within days, General Douglas MacArthur issued orders for all U.S. forces on Luzon Island to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula. This was a fighting withdrawal and many units, including the Philippine Scouts 88th Field Artillery, 1st Battalion, to which Mess Sergeant Jose Calugas belonged, were ordered to defend the roads along the main withdrawal route into Bataan. Layak was a barrio where several important roads met. One was the main road that U.S. forces were using to withdraw to Bataan. Another was Bataan's east road going south into the Bataan Peninsula. This east road was the main road on Bataan. It was vital for the withdrawal, and even more vital to keep out of Japanese hands if U.S. forces had any prayer of holding Bataan. So, in the first days of January 1942, Sergeant Jose Calugas and the 1st Battalion of the 88th Field Artillery joined another artillery unit, three infantry units, and a supporting tank unit in defense of the junction at Layak. Also defending there was the Philippine Scouts 26th Cavalry, which I highlighted in episodes 6 and 11. At the time, Sergeant Calugas was Battery B's mess sergeant. That means he oversaw his battery's food preparation and serving. 
In artillery units, a battery is a subunit of a larger artillery unit. It's basically equivalent to an infantry's company. Battery B was one of two batteries in the 1st Battalion of the 88th Field Artillery at Layak. At 10.30 on the morning of January 6, 1942, a column of Japanese infantry, artillery, and light tanks began to march down Route 7 toward Layak Junction. The column soon came within range of the 88th Field Artillery's guns. The 88th opened fire, their ammo hitting directly on top of the column. In response, the Japanese column moved off the road, deploying about 4,200 yards northeast of Layak. They immediately moved their 75mm guns and their eight 150mm howitzers into position. Overhead, Japanese observation planes helped their ground forces know where to aim. These observation planes had no opposition in the air, since one, the U.S. Air Forces had been all but demolished by this point, and two, the American ground forces apparently had no anti-aircraft weapons. With the help of the surveillance planes, the Japanese howitzers were able to accurately and concentratedly hit American infantry and artillery targets with punishing fire. And, unfortunately, those howitzers were out of the U.S. artillery gun's range. Even when the U.S. infantry and artillery moved position, the observation planes were able to help Japanese artillery adjust and again pinpoint the American position. MacArthur reported to Washington that the enemy was using its, quote, complete command of the air to fully affect against our artillery, close quote. Around 2 p.m., Sergeant Kalugas noticed that a gun from another battery was silent. The gun had been bombed and shelled so heavily and accurately that all the cannoneers were wounded or killed. A newspaper reported, Kalugas voluntarily and without orders organized a squad of 16 to put the gun back into commission. They tried to sprint 1,000 yards to the gun under heavy shell fire. 1,000 yards is the equivalent to 10 football fields, end to end, or a little over half a mile. Imagine for a moment running that distance while shells and explosives are raining down on you. Explosives that have already put the gun you're running for out of commission. A newspaper continued, When the men with him fell, wounded or killed, he dove to the ground and crept along while machine gun bullets ripped at his clothing and shrapnel flew all around him. By God's mercy, nothing hit my body, Kalugas later recalled. While most of the 16 men he'd organized had to fall back, were wounded, or even killed, Sergeant Kalugas and an officer made it to the gun. The gun still had plenty of ammunition, so Kalugas, who had advanced artillery training, repaired the gun and began firing. His Medal of Honor citation states, Kalugas fired effectively against the enemy, although the position remained under constant and heavy artillery fire. I like Jose Kalugas Jr.'s explanation even better. And he was able to fire by himself this 75 millimeter cannon by himself. It used to be manned by seven people. Just imagine, by himself, he was able to annihilate a right about 60 trucks, and I don't know how many Japanese were killed. Kalugas manned the seven-man gun, alone, for two hours, firing 72 rounds. These field artillery guns were on wheels for easy transport, kind of like the old cannons from the Revolution and Civil War times. They had a shield at the back where Kalugas and other servicemen were protected from enemy fire. I've added a picture of one of these guns to the Left Behind Facebook page, 
There's a link in the show description. Galugas' actions allowed other U.S. forces to dig in and prepare a line of defense. His rounds landed on top of the Japanese columns, which were still advancing toward the U.S. line. And although he didn't know the extent of his success, a major later noted that Kalugas' efforts destroyed around 60 approaching vehicles. Do you want to remain here, Kalugas, or go to the rear? An officer asked Sergeant Kalugas around 4 p.m. Kalugas chose to return to his mess kitchen that was near the front lines, recalling that, Without the kitchen, the soldiers would starve. It was dark by the time he got back to the kitchen, where he fed the hungry soldiers in his battery. The soldiers were very happy, for they had not eaten for quite some time. Plus, I have to think they were also glad to be alive, which was, in part, due to Sergeant Kalugas' actions that day. By the way, on my website you can watch a 1944 video of American soldiers eating at a filled kitchen in Holland just to give you an idea of what mess Sergeant Kalugas would have been working in. The link is in the show description. Later that evening, when the battle had quieted down and all the soldiers were fed and watered, Jose reflected on his wife, Nora, and three children, and was immensely thankful they had left the now war-torn Luzon Island a month previous and were far away in their small village in Iloilo. Years later, Kalugas would tell a reporter that a, quote, heartsick feeling returns, close quote, when he recalls that day's actions. He continued, I do not like to be under pressure. But when I come under pressure and feel myself on the verge of that heartsick feeling I mentioned before, I know that I must get myself out of that feeling and so relieve that pressure. I know I alone can do this, anytime, anyplace, and anywhere. That is still my motive in life, not to depend on help coming from someplace else. That feeling still exists, that I will somehow know what to do. I cannot say that I'm not afraid when faced with danger. Yes, I am afraid, but not so frightened that I lose control. Somehow, fortunately for me, my brain continues to function coolly and I do not get flustered. Which is precisely what made him such an excellent soldier. A little more than 12 hours after these actions, back in Washington, D.C., President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave the 1942 State of the Union Address. In it, he stated, We are fighting today for security, for progress, and for peace not only for ourselves, but for all men, not only for one generation, but for all generations. We are fighting to cleanse the world of ancient evils, ancient ills. Our enemies are guided by brutal cynicism, by unholy contempt for the human race. We are inspired by a faith that goes back through all the years to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. God created man in his own image. We on our side are striving to be true to that divine heritage. We are fighting as our fathers have fought to uphold the doctrine that all men are equal in the sight of God. Those on the other side are striving to destroy this deep belief and to create a world in their own image, a world of tyranny and cruelty and serfdom. That is the conflict that day and night 
now pervades our lives. No compromise can end that conflict. There never has been, there never can be, successful compromise between good and evil. Only, only total victory can reward the champions of tolerance and decency and freedom and faith. News of Kalugas' actions had not yet reached the president, but the U.S. leader truly could have been speaking of Sergeant Kalugas, who was indeed fighting for his children's future and the opportunities that freedom provides. As I've researched Sergeant Kalugas' actions on Bataan, there's one thing I consistently come across. Every military record, newspaper article, and even the Medal of Honor citation itself states that Kalugas' heroic actions happened on January 16, 1942. But this is inaccurate. Not just inaccurate, it's impossible. You see, the battle near Layak Junction was on January 6, 1942. That's a historic fact. Ten days later, on January 16th, the supposed day of Kalugas' actions, Layak Junction was occupied by Japanese forces, and the fighting front line was about 12 miles or 19 kilometers south of Layak. As I came to realize the date discrepancies as I was researching this episode, I wondered why everything about Kalugas consistently gave the wrong date. Even newspapers written in the 1970s and including interviews with Jose himself stated the wrong date of January 16th. And I began to wonder, where did the incorrect date come from? And then I found the source. Turns out, the error began with General Douglas MacArthur. On February 12, 1942, about five weeks after the action at Layak, General MacArthur sent a radiogram to Washington, D.C., recommending Sergeant Jose Calugas for the Congressional Medal of Honor. That radiogram read, Recommend award Congressional Medal of Honor, Sergeant Jose Calugas, 6738, Battery B, 88 Field Artillery, Philippine Scout, stop. All conditions governing award fully met, stop. At Calugas, Bataan Province on January 16th, 42, battery gun position shelled and bombed. Did you hear the date MacArthur gave? January 16th, 42, meaning 1942. This error could have been a typo, or a result of incorrect information being passed along, or any number of other reasons. Lieutenant Alexander Nininger, who I highlighted in episode 16, was the first Medal of Honor awardee in World War II for his actions on January 12, 1942, almost a week after Kalugas' actions at Layak. As a researcher, and maybe because I'm a little OCD, I wanted to point out and emphasize the inaccurate information and the correct date, because Kalugas did in fact receive the Medal of Honor for actions performed before Nininger's. I should also point out that later in the war, several men received Medals of Honor for their actions during the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, which was even earlier than Kalugas' actions. But when all is said and done, the date doesn't matter so much. Because the fact is that Sergeant Kalugas saw a need outside his sphere of responsibility and realized he might be the only one who could fill that need. So, taking matters into his own hands, he risked his life to ensure American servicemen could continue withdrawing to the Bataan Peninsula. 
He is truly a brave man and undeniable hero. He is the second person to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor in World War II, the first enlisted man of the war to do so, and he is the only Filipino to receive that Medal of Valor during World War II. Once the U.S. War Department in Washington received MacArthur's recommendation, it took only six days for Kalugas' medal to be approved. On February 14th, two days after receiving the recommendation, the War Department's Assistant Chief of Staff wrote a memorandum to the Chief of Staff recommending that the medal be awarded to Kalugas, saying, quote, Kalugas's actions fulfill the requirements of the law governing the award of the Medal of Honor, close quote. Over the next few days, various other officials approved the award, and on February 18th, newspapers around the United States announced that Sergeant Kalugas had received the highest Medal of Valor a U.S. serviceman can receive. The papers touted Kalugas's bravery and reported the story of his heroic actions. One newspaper announced, In a larger sense, the tribute is to the entire Filipino fighting force. Daily for weeks we have read and thrilled to the news that MacArthur is holding, which means all his men, Filipinos as well as Americans, are holding in one of the toughest assignments in this toughest of all wars. Jose Calugas is a shining example. And, curiously, the newspapers also seemed fixated on something rather strange. Several published the news that Calugas was 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighed 116 pounds, concluding that he is probably one of the smallest men to win the national honor for heroism. Sergeant Kalugas followed the American and Filipino forces into Bataan. While on the peninsula, he received the award's written citation, but not the medal. It's not really the kind of thing one particularly wants to carry around a battlefield. He spent the next three months on Bataan. There was no provision for all the troops in the Philippines. No air power, no food, no medical supplies no ammo at all whatsoever. Even then, they repulsed the Japanese in five months. On April 9, 1942, U.S. forces could no longer repulse the Japanese forces and surrendered Bataan. Sergeant Kalugas, alongside all other American and Filipino servicemen on the peninsula, became a prisoner of war. And then came the Bataan Death March, the nearly 70-mile forced march of American and Filipino POWs from southern Bataan to the POW Camp O'Donnell. The march was torture, made even worse by the treatment of the Japanese guards. Sergeant Kalugas' son, Jose Jr., wrote, He was caught drinking water by the Japanese guards and was beaten by a rifle butt on his head. He was lucky he had his steel helmet on. Even then, the blow cost him approximately a three-inch laceration to his scalp. These types of events were all too common for POWs during the horrendous march. But it was perhaps even more dangerous for Sergeant Kalugas. In a 1975 retrospective about Kalugas, Tacoma, Washington reporter Howard Ferguson stated, He was a marked man. Jose had been awarded the country's highest medal prior to his capture, and as such, he would have been a prime candidate for death. He had buried the general order awarding him the decoration. An officer cautioned his fellow prisoners not to mention the medal. As a marked man, Kalugas also worried about Japanese reprisals against his wife, children, and other family back in Iloilo. I'm quite struck by this. I haven't put enough thought into the Filipino servicemen fighting in their country for their families. American POWs had to watch their actions to keep themselves alive. But Filipino POWs? 
Well, they had the added stress of worrying how their actions would affect their families. Back in Iloilo, Sergeant Kalugas' wife and children were weathering the war as best they could. His son Jose Jr. was four or five years old the first time he remembers meeting his father after the war. Jose Jr. would have been almost two when Nora and the children left Fort Stotzenberg at the outbreak of war. Today, Jose Jr. is in his 80s and recalls hiding with his mother from Japanese soldiers in the mountains near their Iloilo home. He would eventually follow in his father's footsteps and join the U.S. Army. He told KCTS 9 in 2007 that, My dad is my hero to me and of course to the whole family and the rest of the people who admired him or what he did. The march ended at Camp O'Donnell. And at that camp, Kalugas was among the tens of thousands of POWs suffering from debilitating bouts of malaria, dysentery, beriberi, and other diseases. For some time, he was seriously ill, on the verge of becoming one of the 400 daily fatalities at O'Donnell. But as his health improved, he realized that the diseases were perhaps a little bit of a blessing because the Japanese guards left him alone. So, wanting them to continue ignoring him, he amped up his symptoms. He explained, Every time the guards would come to inspect, I would wrap myself in burlap and I would shake as hard as I could. It worked. After nine months imprisonment at Cab O'Donnell, so in January 1943, Jose Calugas was released with all remaining Filipino prisoners at O'Donnell. Basically, the Japanese needed, for their own forces, the resources they were using to feed and house the Filipino POWs. He spent another nine months working at a Japanese-run rice mill. But, in the fall of 1943, he joined a guerrilla unit called Squadron No. 227 Old Bronco. Based on Luzon Island, this unit was organized by a 25-year-old American officer named Robert Lapham, who escaped capture on Bataan and organized one of the largest and most effective guerrilla units in the Philippines during World War II. I'm going to talk more about Lapham and his raiders in future episodes because there are some fantastic stories. Under Lapham's command, Jose Calugas was promoted to second lieutenant and was in command of a heavy weapons platoon. He battled and harassed Japanese forces until early 1945 when General MacArthur and U.S. forces returned to the Philippines. Kalugas, now a platoon leader, joined his unit in the evasion of Munoz and other Philippine islands. In March 1945, he was recalled to active U.S. Army duty. And the next month, he was finally presented with his Medal of Honor. I've put a picture from that ceremony on Facebook. At war's end, the U.S. Army offered Jose Calugas U.S. citizenship and the chance to become an officer. He accepted and was promoted to lieutenant. Now, he had been promoted to lieutenant in the guerrilla unit, but that wasn't an official U.S. Army promotion. From 1947 to 1953, First Lieutenant Jose Calugas was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. This station location coming just a couple years after the war where the Japanese military inflicted so much pain, damage, and atrocities on his homeland, begs the question, how did Jose Calugas feel about the Japanese people? His son, Jose Jr. wrote, When my father was asked if he had any bitterness or hatred against the Japanese, he said, quote, If I lost my life in the battlefield, those were the vicissitudes of being a soldier. If God wanted my life, 
then at least I have the peace of mind knowing that what I did was in fulfillment of the oath I took as a soldier." We also have learned from our Father how to forgive and love our enemies. Forgiving helped him press on with his life. After Okinawa, he spent the next four years at various bases in the U.S., finally settling at Fort Lewis in Tacoma, Washington. Captain Jose Calugas retired from the Army in April 1957 after 27 years of service. During those 10 years of post-war Army assignments in Japan and the United States, Captain Calugas' wife and children remained in the Philippines. After Jose's retirement, the family was able to join him in Washington State. But it was a staggered reunion. His wife Nora explained, The family came over piecemeal. Our second son left me in 1958, and our only daughter in 1960. Then I came in 1962, and when the last son arrived in 1963, we were all united. We are very fortunate. It took 14 years from the time Jose Calugas left the Philippine Islands in 1947 until their last son arrived in the U.S. in 1963 for the family to be completely reunited. And that's not counting their separation during the war years. The same year he retired from the Army, 50-year-old Jose Calugas used the GI Bill to enroll in business school at the University of Puget Sound. In 1961, this 55-year-old son of humble Filipino farmers graduated with a bachelor's degree in business administration and began an 11-year career at Boeing, where he worked as a cost accountant. His oldest son, Jose Jr., explained, He showed to his children and to his grandchildren that it wasn't too late to seek personal advancement, and that the only way to achieve this was through education and hard work. He was the first in our family to graduate from the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. In this respect, my sister Minerva said, quote, I consider him a trailblazer, close quote. I had the privilege of speaking with Jose Jr. He is a kind, friendly man who speaks with a slight Filipino accent as he lived in the Philippines until he was 17 years old. He called me the day after I sent him a cold email asking if he'd be interested in talking with me about his father. If any man ever honored his father, that man is Jose Jr. To my surprise, my biggest takeaway from our conversation is the legacy of education and opportunity that Jose Calugas Sr. left his children, grandchildren, and beyond. Jose Sr. and his wife Nora were the first college graduates in their families. Their children and grandchildren followed in their footsteps, and today the Calugas family boasts many college graduates, including advanced degrees. Education was very important to Jose Calugas Sr., so important that in his later years, a 1981 newspaper reported, he and his wife Nora live frugally so they can send most of their money to help educate nieces and nephews in the Philippines. When asked why he did so, Calugas answered, God lengthened my life for a reason. Jose Calugas Sr. was proud of his family's accomplishments. So is Jose Jr., I have loved hearing him tell me about what his own children and grandchildren have accomplished. He told me, Dad said, this is America. You can do whatever you want to do. It's not like the Philippines. Get a good education. As these accomplishments show, Jose Calugas Sr. was an extremely disciplined man. Jose Jr. told me that if his father had something that needed to be done, he would make sure it was done. Calugas was also a kind and caring man. A newspaper reporter described him, he is quiet-spoken, a gentleman, 
His face shines with warmth and, with a thick accent, he often tells jokes that are hard for an English-attuned ear to fully understand. Jose Jr.'s wife Goody called her father-in-law, quote, a very simple, humble man, a very loving father and grandfather. His first concern when people would walk into the house was to go in and prepare food. He was always concerned about people having enough to eat, and you always had to take something home, close quote. After retirement from Boeing, Jose Caluga Sr. spent a lot of time gardening. His wife Nora and he had a small piece of land just outside of Tacoma that he spent his summers farming. I don't make much money out of it, but we sure have plenty of vegetables around. I think I do it more to keep fit and to get out of the house. I can't just sit around. And sit around he didn't. As a Medal of Honor awardee, Jose Caluga Sr. was often invited to celebrations where he was an honored guest and received additional awards. In 1953, he was invited back to the Philippines to receive a Philippine military decoration called the Distinguished Conduct Star. At the same time, he was also awarded the very first Survivor Baton Death March ribbon and was the first to sign the Philippines Armed Forces Registry Book of Baton Death March Survivors. In 1975, he took part in a Florida parade for Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. He joked that, Some of us are old men already, but I can still march. A couple years later, Jose and Nora Calugas returned to their hometown in the Philippines for the first time since Jose left 30 years prior in 1947. I'm looking forward to seeing all of my relatives. The whole barrio was related to me. But despite these accolades and awards, Jose Calugas rarely spoke about the war and the actions for which he received the award. Jose Jr. told me his father didn't like doing interviews about the war. He recalled watching his father brush his hair, seeing a scar, and thinking, that's from the war. Calugas's daughter-in-law Goody remembered, quote, he never talked about his accomplishments. We had to read about them, close quote. So curious was Jose Jr. about his father's war service that Jose Jr. joined the Philippine Scout Heritage Society, where he met men who had served with and told stories about his father. But there was a reason Jose Calugas didn't speak much about the war. Like many veterans, he had some PTSD struggles. His daughter-in-law said, quote, He could never talk about it. It was too traumatizing for him. Up until the last day, he'd wake up from his sleep and scream from nightmares about combat. Close quote. Starting in early 1976, Jose Calugas Sr., then in his late 60s, suffered a series of strokes, from which he never fully recovered. Toward the end of his life, he lived in a Veterans Affairs nursing home in Tacoma, Washington. His wife, Nora, passed away in 1990. Jose Calugas passed away on January 18, 1998, 56 years and 12 days after his heroic actions at Layak Junction. He had just turned 90 years old. He rests in Mountain View Memorial Park in Tacoma, Washington. I was fortunate to know him as my father, Jose Jr. wrote. I am proud to be his son. He is my hero and I love him. Today, Captain Jose Calugas' Medal of Honor resides at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. The family donated the medal to this fort where General Jonathan Wainwright was in command directly following World War II. General Wainwright had been in command of the Baton Forces at surrender. Jose Jr. said, You know, this Medal of Honor really belongs to the people. And he said, I'm the only wearer of the medal. I wear it. But it really belongs to the people that died in the Philippines, the Filipino scouts, 
and it belongs to all the public that wants to know about the history. In the end, patriotism, education, and honor were important traits to Jose Caluga Sr. Jose Jr. wrote about his father. His advice to the youth of America is, be a man and fight for America and protect America as much as you can, whether at war or in peace. During his days on Bataan, Sergeant Caluga saw many young men who stood up and fought not only for America, but for the Philippines. One of those young men was a 27-year-old Minnesota native named Willibald Bianchi, whose heroic actions earned him the third Medal of Honor awarded for Valor on Bataan. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Jose Calugas' story on Facebook and on my website. The links are in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend. Sharing this podcast allows others to find and experience these amazing stories. Left Behind is research written and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Jose Calugas Jr. for the time, documents, and information he provided about his father. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. I'll be back next time with a wounded American officer who commandeered a damaged tank to fight off approaching enemy forces.